Revelation chapter 14. We arrive at chapter 14, and it's the conclusion of a three-chapter interlude before the final act begins concerning God's final seven bowl judgments. The final, you might even say the final countdown. The result will be the Lord Jesus, also known as the Lamb, taking back the earth and setting up his millennial kingdom. The end has come. This is a foreshadow. This sees everything. Everything. In chapter 12, John introduced to us the major characters that will play the major roles in this real-life drama of the last seven years. In chapter 13, we were introduced to the false prophet and the beast, the terrifying tyrant with his religious henchmen leading a worldwide government that stands against God on every front, on every front, with their hands and fists in the air, finally causing everyone on earth to either worship the beast and his image or likely face deadly consequences. Most will die if you do not worship the beast. Bleak times indeed. And for followers of Christ, the followers of Christ, where there will be many, I believe it'll be the greatest revival in the history of mankind because after they see what's going on, there will be many who say, no, I don't want any of this. But there will be some, my neighbor was right. They were telling the truth. Maybe there, there is something to this book. They'll need encouragement to persevere. And we see just that this, this morning, when we witness the triumph of the Lamb and his followers, that's the name of the sermon. That's the, that's the overlying theme of this chapter. The visions in 14, not only encouraged encouragement to the saints, but this too, church, it's also a warning, the last warning. The last warning that the Lord gives to those who have rejected him before the inevitable end comes. Would you stand with me? And I want us to read together the first verse of chapter, Revelation chapter 14. If you need a Bible, you can find one in a blue one. It's on page 1036 in your blue Bibles. But if I give you time to get to your device, but if we will read together. And if you don't have an ESV, please read what's on the screen. Once she gets it there, she will get there. Oh, maybe it's fucked up. Okay, it's all right. There we go. The word of the Lord says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Would you pray with me? Father, as we look into your word this morning, I ask that you use it to strengthen our resolve. As we move toward more perilous days ahead, 
It is not getting easier, Lord. It will be getting harder, but you will guide us. Lord God, embolden us by your spirit to live our lives in the hope of your son's ultimate victory. May the truths today give us confidence to live victoriously moving forward in, around, and before a watching world who needs you. I pray this in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. What a contrast from the mark of the beast to the victorious followers of the Lamb. Instead of the savage beast and those forced to bear his name, John sees those who have the name of the Father on their foreheads. And I'll read the verse again. Then I looked, and behold, that's different than what we've seen all the way through the book of Revelation. We've said, we've, and I looked, and I looked, and I saw, and I saw. But he says this time, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I bring this verse to you again because we need to understand what John is witnessing, who and where he's witnessing, because this is important. In fact, John wants to make sure that we don't miss it, the location, the person, the persons, that they're noticed, because, he, again, I say, behold, look. You almost might say that. Look, there's the lamb. Well, first, where is he standing? First, the location. Well, we see it plainly, right? It's Mount Zion. You don't think it'd be that easy, do you? Well, Mount Zion in the Scriptures can be the heavenly temple in heaven, or it can be the temple mount where Mount Zion is, or even the, the whole block of Israel. But we need some clues here to understand and establish the what, who, and the where. Now, we know one thing. The Lamb is Jesus, right? We know the Lamb is Jesus. He's the one who is worthy to take the seven-sealed scroll from the hand of God and open them one by one. And he is what? He is standing on the earth. He's standing. When we last left the beast, where was he standing? He, was, he came out of the sea, and he was standing on sand. Now, what is sand? Sand is squishy. Sand is movable. Sand won't last. We're not supposed to build our house on a sand, right? We're supposed to build it on the rock. Well, Jesus is standing on the earth. A picture of complete victory. And the picture of who are with him, 144,000, we're not told what. 144,000. Now, is this a symbol? No, I don't believe so. If these are the same 144,000 Jewish believers who were sealed in chapter 7, and I'll let you in on it, I believe it is. They were assured that they would be kept until the end. They're standing. It's a picture of those believers who have been preserved by God through the fearful days of the persecution who were with him. They're standing with the Lamb, the 144,000 Put it this way, they made it. 
They made it. This is picturing after the carnage, after the terrible things that are going to happen, that the things are foreshown in this, in this chapter. They're there at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, the literal 1,000 years that Christ begins to rule the nations from Jerusalem, from Mount Zion itself, with a rod of iron, I might say, a new start with a perfect king. John Volverd writes, this is a place of security, blessing, and glory in the earthly Jerusalem. They're standing. They've made it. They have conquered. What a picture. And of course, because of that, I say that with a, a lilt in my voice, of course, there is more loud, beautiful music because of it. Again, there will be no shortage of music in heaven if you do not, or even on earth at that time. If you don't like it, I'm sorry. <laughs> of course you'd say that, Joel. Verse 2, and I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. The song, majestic. Awesome. Well, who's singing? It's not the 144,000. They're on the earth. Who's singing? It's coming from where we aren't told. It's coming from heaven itself. Is it, is it the 24 elders or the, or the ones seated around the throne? Is it the four living creatures? Is it the many, many, many angels? Or is it the redeemed who are, who are in heaven right now? We don't know. But all we're told is no one knows the song except them. No one is able to learn the song except the 144,000. Now, why is this? Are they speaking a weird language? Are they speaking a weird heavenly language? No. Is it in a minor key? Is that why they can't learn it? For me, I, when I looked at a key, if it had three sharps, I would be terrified. It's not because of that. No, it's a song that they have lived. A song that they have lived. A song that is their song. They understand it. Like a song that you and your significant other might hear on a radio or an MP3 or whatever you listen to your music that's special to you. In the Old Testament, a new song was always about this. It was one of praise to God for new mercies. New mercies. Also, these 144,000, as we will see, are men who march to a different drumbeat. Hmm. It was Henry David Thoreau who said, and I quote, if a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Here's a group of committed men who 
listen to a different drumbeat. They follow the music of heaven. They can learn the song of the redeemed because they know themselves what redemption means, because they too have been redeemed. What else is special about these unique men who stand with the Lord? They keep themselves for the Lord only. They have themselves been set apart, literally. Look at verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, ladies, don't get angry here. These men are not chauvinists. They're celibates. It's not that they don't like women. No, they have separated themselves so they can be completely single-mindedly focused. These who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Like Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. We're divided if we're married. Because I don't know about you, I want to make sure that my wife is happy. She, I would hopefully say the same, and she would. She's very good at it. You were the same about your wives or when you were married before. I look at the widowers and widows. You wanted to please your husband. The point is, is the 144,000 were dedicated to the lamb to, a, to the point of the no distractions of family. Think about this time that they lived. It was not normal. Their lives were in danger constantly. And if your family is in danger, you are a divided man or a divided woman. This isn't a knock on marriage, but they will live in a time when normal marital life will be impossible. And these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. First fruits, the first fruits of a harvest. The first fruits are always the best fruits. The first fruits were a symbol of the harvest to come. This seems to mean that these 144,000 have been set apart to begin the world again. They'll begin the millennium. They're going to be a part of a repopulated earth, and they're the ones who start it, the first harvest of many that will occur in that 1,000-year reign. There's one more quality that these people have. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Blameless. Yes, they're sinners. Yes, they're sinners in the sense that they needed to be redeemed and saved by the Lamb, but they've given themselves so fully to God and His ways and His purposes that they were considered blameless. They were seen as being with Christ. They were seen by the Father as being in Christ. Jesus is described this way, and Tom read it earlier this morning. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
How are you in comparison to that? Can we say that we speak truth? Is that a normal occurrence? Do we live our lives in a way that makes him happy, makes him glad? Are we striving for holiness? Are you a truth teller? Or do you take the easy way out? Have you given your life as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service? So John saw the victorious followers of the Lamb, and now he's witness to the angelic announcement of what's coming. The angelic announcements of what's coming. There will be six different angels that attract our attention as we continue to look forward to what will take place during the final seven years. I think I failed to, to mention earlier that the visions here in chapter 14 are not chronological because we saw Jesus first when it was done. But each vision builds on the other. Let's begin with the first announcement, which is actually God's last call of grace to those who are still in rebellion. God still is gracefully calling. Verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Overhead means simply this. It means everyone will hear it. Everyone will be able to hear it in their own language. Every nation, every tongue. All will hear the ageless good news that God saves. Again, every nation, every tongue. Language will not be a problem. Ageless. The ageless gospel is, it means this. It's, it's not for any specific period. Only through this method, believing what God has spoken from the Old Testament all the way through the new, believing what God has spoken. Had Jesus died yet when Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by their faith. Romans repeats that. Many other places, the righteous shall live by, her, by their faith. What do we believe now? What do we faithfully believe? That Jesus Christ came, he died he was buried, and on the third day he rose again, the third day according to the Scriptures. And if you apply that to your life, that is the gospel. That's what God asks you to believe right now. That's how you're saved. You must believe him, worship him, and obey him. The substance of the eternal gospel, and he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Fear God and give him glory. Don't worship someone other than Yahweh. Don't worship some other false god. Don't worship a counterfeit. Don't worship your life here. Don't worship money. Don't worship sex. Don't worship whatever. Worship the Lord. We've seen that to give God glory is an idiom of repentance. 
Turn and believe. Turn and believe. Why? Because this, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Instead of the beast, turn to God or you are promised judgment. Promised. And God keeps his promises. These are the facts. Rapid fire, John continues. Verse 8, another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of passion of her sexual immorality. There are many ideas who and what Babylon is. Preterist means those who believe that Revelation, all the things in Revelation have taken place already before 70 and during 70 AD. They believe that Babylon was actually Jerusalem. But God never uses that term. For others, they believe it. Okay, are they talking about the literal city on the river Euphrates in Iraq? That's where Babylon is, the ancient ruins of Babylon. Is he talking about this? There are many who believe it was the ancient city of Rome. There are, there are facts that bear this out. Peter symbolically called Rome Babylon in 1 Peter 5.13. Others that believe that Babylon speaks of the Roman Catholic Church. I'm sure that many of us have heard that. The Roman Catholic Church and the, the papacy, which means the Pope, that goes with them. People have believed that throughout the ages. For me, I believe the evidence points to Babylon being the political, ecclesiastical, and economic power during the tribulation. The ruling power, the government, the false religious group that goes with this, those led by the Antichrist and the false Christ, the whole ball of wax, the whole system, it's Babylon. Chapters 17 and 18 teach this. Babylon has always been seen as evil. She has always been evil, always against God's purposes. From Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. And what did God do? He dispersed the world because they thought they were great. They were going to build themselves, make themselves up to reach up to God. What John sees and hears is the ultimate doom of the world system. Verse 9 and following now gives those who worship the beast, who reject God, a chilling, fiery warning of what will take place. Not possibly, but certain. Because the world has followed, believed, and drank what Babylon figuratively offered them, this is the result. It's not easy to speak of. It's hard to listen to. But it has to be said. It must be said. Speaking to the, those who will live before, after us, are you tempted to worship the beast? Listen. Are you tempted to live your own way without God? Listen. Beware, this will be what happens. Verse 9. 
And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever received receives the mark of its name. I'm sure you came today to be light and fluffy, right? It's not a a popular subject to broach. But you know that Jesus warned of hell more than any other person in the New Testament. That was a constant point of his sermons. Volverd writes, Jesus referred to hell, which is Gehenna, 11 out of the 12 occurrences, made 12 out of 19 references to hell fire, and used other similar expressions more than any other person in the New Testament. The loving Savior pleading with sinners who had rejected him to turn to him and believe and live to give God glory, to believe what God says. And this is God's wrath without mercy. Without mercy, undiluted, unmixed, untampered by the mercy that God would provide for anyone who would turn to him. Church, and those who aren't part of the church, God still is holding his hand. Believe. There's mercy. But now it's too late. And they will be judged in front of the one the lamb who they denied. And it lasts for more than a minute, lasts for more than an hour, it lasts for more than a day, it lasts for more than a year, forever. theologian has said, and I quote, they say the damned in hell will know one word, forever. It will be written everywhere in their dirt where they live, in their ashes, even as they peer up towards God's throne, there in bold letters will read, forever. It will be heard in the faintest of whispers, in the most hideous screams of torment, forever. It will be muttered day in, day out, on all the lips, forever, forever, forever. Their one prayer would be to be turned to nothing. And forever cease to be 
that they may escape the wrath of God. It's hard to fathom. But the scriptures declare it to be so. You have to do gymnastics to try to get out of it. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said, He who does not believe that God will cast unbelievers into hell will not be sure that he will take believers into heaven. If there's no heaven, there's no hell. If there's no hell, there's no heaven. Jesus warned his generation. He said, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. But with the dire warning comes a blessed, a blessed promise. It applies to all those who will die in the Lord but especially to those who face martyrdom in the future time of the tribulation. This is written for the future. His saints, these saints, will rest, but only after their death. It applies to all who die in the Lord, but especially to those who face martyrdom. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds will follow them. Heaven will not forget your faithful deeds. Church, these are simple questions and I really, I don't want you to answer them, but I'm gonna ask you this. What happens after death? What happens after death? We'll be with the Lord We'll be at rest, we'll be rewarded, and we'll be freed from pain and problems. Does that sound like a win-win to you? And yet, we're fearful. And we have that to look forward to. Be with the Lord, be at rest, be rewarded, and be freed of pain and problems. We have observed the victorious followers of the Lamb, witnessed the angelic announcements of what's coming, and now the reaping of the earth. When When Jesus spoke of the end of time as we know it, he used different analogies depending on who he was speaking to. For those familiar with sheep, he said this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. To those who were familiar with fishing, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into fire and to the fiery furnace in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the farming community when he explaining the parable of the weeds. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Jesus speaking of himself. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears... Let him hear. The seeds of evil have been planted, rooted, grown, matured, and ripened. John now sees the culmination of this age. John sees Jesus ready to judge the earth and put a sickle to it. Verse 14, then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. The command coming directly from the throne room of God, given to the angel to encourage Christ, go. Do it now. What he started in chapter 6, finish. In John 5, Jesus, or John wrote these words that Jesus said. John quoted him saying, For as the Father has given or life in himself, for the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son to have life in in himself. And he has given him authority Authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Jesus has life. 
That's why we have life, because we have trusted him. But he's also the judge, and this is a picture of him doing it. The verdict, guilty. And the judgment, swift. And before a breath can be taken, the sentence on the entire earth is graphically described. And then another angel reaps what Christ did not. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire. And fire always represents judgment and God answering the, the prayers of his saints. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vines, vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. A picture of what is known as the final battle of Armageddon. 180 miles of horrible bloodshed and carnage that spans the whole length of Israel. This morning we drank grape juice that symbolized Christ's blood that he shed. And for that, it's a ceremony, it was a, it's a glorious thing. But this this symbolizing here, this symbolism is terrifying. It's terrifying. When Jesus came first, he came offering salvation and mercy. He didn't come to judge. He came to save. When he comes again, judgment and justice. I know you're getting tired of this. I know you're getting, oh, this is, oh, how much more can you do? Oh, here's more. Isaiah writes, the Lord is speaking this. Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He was splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like those who tread in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod, I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all of my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Judgment. Final and complete annihilation for the Antichrist, the false prophet, 
and those who worshiped him. Our minds cannot fathom that this taking place. Can't imagine the carnage and the utter horror of such a spectacle. But I can't fathom the heart of man trying to hold off the kingdom of God. I can't imagine that either. They still try today. They still try to keep Christ's kingdom from coming. They try it today. They will try it in the future, but they will be unsuccessful. You might have a problem about God's judgment. It's something that many can't stomach or imagine. And many say, if your God is like this, I don't want to have anything to do with him. How can a merciful God condemn people to hell? How can a loving God do that, not only for a time, but for an eternity? It's not fair. Can I ask you a question? When you look at our own judicial system, do we expect our judges to do what is right? Do we expect them to do their job? Maybe possibly an even more pointed question. What do you think if a judge lets off a convicted criminal? Let's go a murderer, a sex offender, thieves. Just go free. You expect justice, don't you? Hear me. We still live in a day of grace. God has not yet commanded the angel to thrust the sickle into the ripe clusters. But one day it will happen. For a rebellious world, their time will be up. Don't wait. Give God glory. Turn to him before his wrath is poured out. I'll conclude here. I'm a history buff to my wife's chagrin. Past generations weren't so quick to shy away from considering the wrath of God. In 1861, a woman named Julia Ward Howe during the Civil War visited a Union site, in fact, the, 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 the Army of the Potomac, and she heard soldiers as they were singing a song that was dedicated to John Brown. Now, John Brown was a, was a man who was hanged. It was part of the buildup. It was part of the, the, the north against the south. He was an abolitionist. 
And he was hung before, by attempting because he attempted to lead an insurrection of, of slaves at Harper's Ferry. That doesn't matter. But what they sang, they sang, how heard this? John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. And I'm not going to sing it. But her minister, her pastor told her, you know, those words, they're not that good. Why don't you write something biblical about that? Why don't you make it right? Maybe, why don't you make something fit for the times? And she did. We know the song as the battle hymn of the Republic. The words. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. His truth still continues today. Be faithful. Tell others. We do not want to see them go through this or die without Jesus. Lord God, we come to you as those who are tired and worn out from hearing about the just judgment to come. Lord God, first we honor you and we praise you for your son, the lamb, who took your wrath upon the cross so we are not under that sentence. Thank you. But Lord, as we see a world who is dying, who is already dead, they need life. And God, when we see what is coming, may you give us the words, give us the strength to lovingly tell others that they do not want to go through the judgment, the just judgment that is coming because of sin. Lord God, we are not anything ourselves. We have not a leg to stand on. We have nothing that we can be braggadocious about. Only you. Only you. May you be honored by the last song that we sing today. May it give us hope and strength. I pray these things in Christ's name. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen.